to open by reading uh, the opening paragraph from J.C. Ryle's commentary on this passage. It says, the passage we have now read is a difficult one. There are knots in which there are knots in it which perhaps will never be untied until the Lord comes again. That's a very interesting phrase that he uses there, knots untied. He actually has a, an entire book called Knots Untied that has 19 chapters, and it's this tiny font. It's like 330 pages uh, of all these controversies that were happening at his time. And so he's trying to untie these knots. And he says of this passage, this is a knot that will not be untied until the Lord comes again. Then he says, we might reasonably expect that a book written by inspiration, as the Bible is, would contain things hard to be understood. The fault lies not in the book, but in our own feeble understandings. If we learn nothing else from this passage before us, let us learn humility. I shared that quote with James. I handed him the book the other day in the office, and he's like, you should just read that and say amen and just sit down. And I was like, yes, that would be great. I would love to do that. Just let's pray and go home. If we learn nothing else from this passage, let us learn humility. I think there's two takeaways here. The first is that we need to humble ourselves and we need to submit ourselves under God's word. We don't come to God's word with our superior understanding. We talked a few weeks ago about the noetic effects of the fall. Can you turn me down more still, please? Sorry, I'm like fucking blasting out here. The noetic effects of the fall, how sin affects our minds, how sin affects our thinking and our understanding. So we need to humble ourselves before God and his word. The second takeaway is that we don't come here to church with the mindset I wonder what Pastor Josh has to say or what he thinks about this passage. Now, I'm glad you care what I think. I get paid as your pastor to study and to prepare and to pray and to wrestle with this text. And this week has been a lot of wrestling. But I don't have all the answers. Some passages that we come to are very straightforward. Like you read it and it's just like, yep, pretty easy to understand what's going on there. Uh, some of the passages, there's, there's not a lot of debate among the scholars. The sections in the commentaries are, are really small. But when we come to this passage, this is probably one of the hardest parables of Jesus to understand. And there's some statements following the actual parable itself that are, are pretty hard to understand as well. And I want to say, that's okay. Okay? That's okay that this is hard to understand. I think we're sometimes guilty, especially in our Reformed tradition, of trying to dot all of our theological eyes and cross all of our T's and have everything fit so together so neatly. And for me, if J.C. Ryle, my theological hero, if he says that this is a hard passage, this guy who can run mental laps around me, if he had difficulty with this passage, I'm okay having difficulty with this passage. And I'm okay with you having difficulty with this passage. And I hope you're okay with that too. But we're going to do our best, okay? Let's dive into our text. Let's see why this is so difficult and try to determine what point Jesus is trying to drive home by telling this parable and by looking at the, how the two sections that follow the parable relate to it as well. If you're taking notes, I have two main points. I'll state them, uh, one, the first one now and the second one when I get to it. The first main point is that faithfulness 
with our worldly wealth reveals where our true allegiance lies. Faithfulness with our worldly wealth reveals where our true allegiance lies. Now notice that there's a shift in Jesus' audience beginning in verse 1. It says here that he said, he also said to his disciples. Now the last time that he directly addressed his disciples was way back in chapter 12, starting in verse 22. This was just after the man came up to him. He told Jesus to divide the inheritance between him and his brother. And then Jesus told the parable of the rich fool, which there are a lot of parallels uh, in, in language and, and kind of theme to, to that, uh, to, to our passage for today. The rich fool who built bigger barns and who, whose soul God required of him that very night. Well, after Jesus told that parable, he told his disciples not to be anxious. It was the passage about God feeding the ravens, about God clothing the lilies of the field. And the point was that God would provide for those who follow him. So he told his followers to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then he also said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So a lot of, again, a lot of parallel themes with, with this parable here. Shortly after that, then he turns uh, to address the crowds and there is this back and forth from chapter 12, 22, all the way up to here. There's been this back and forth between the Pharisees and the crowds as Jesus is, is kind of coming at them with some very strong teaching. So here, Jesus is teaching his disciples in verses 1 through 13. But what we're going to notice right after this is that the Pharisees have been listening the whole time. The Pharisees have overheard this whole conversation, and we're going to see that in verses 14 and following. And then we'll finish next. We'll finish chapter 16 next week by looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, which is very clearly directed at the Pharisees. And there are a lot of similar themes about worldly wealth and eternity. It's kind of the continuation of what he starts to teach here. So a little bit of context there. So back to our parable. Uh, we're introduced here to a rich man whose manager gets busted for wasting his possessions. And you see that in verse one. And that word here for wasting, it's actually the same Greek word that's used in Luke 15, just the chapter before this, uh, of the prodigal son, where it says that he squandered his inheritance. This is this idea of, of wasting and squandering kind of ties these two parables together. So after this manager is told that he's about to lose his job, he has this little conversation with himself in verse three. He realizes that he's not cut out for manual labor, that he's too proud to beg. So he goes to work quickly before he loses everything. He calls in his master's debtors one by one. Uh, we're not told how many there are. We can assume that it was several. There's just two that are listed here, but probably this guy, this rich guy who has all this land, he's probably got a whole bunch of debtors, right? So these are just the first two that come in. The first one has 100, owes 100 measures of oil. He's, he is told to sit down and write 50 on the bill. Uh, basically, the equivalent there is it's about 800 gallons of oil down to 400. So these are huge amounts. Uh, the second one is 100 measures of wheat down to 80. So it goes from 1,000 a, a bushels of wheat, which is about 100 acres worth of wheat, which like one football field is about an acre. So imagine 100 football fields uh, at that time, right, before machinery. Like this is, this is a crazy amount, 800 gallons of oil is a, is a massive amount and a thousand bushels of wheat, a hundred acres worth is a massive amount. So, you know, 
there might be some exaggeration here to kind of drive the point home. But the, the reduction that, it, that happens going from 100 to 50, 100 to 80, the reduction in value is scholars have estimated is worth about 16 months of wages for a day laborer. So again, this is like a huge amount, right? Like 16 months of labor that you're, you're getting taken off of this bill that you owe. So that's kind of the parable, right? It's, that's pretty straightforward. But now here's where things get a little bit tricky. And most debates among scholars are over a few things that happen in verses 8 and 9 concerning two different things. One is the content of what is being said. The second is who is actually speaking in these passages. So the first question is in verse 8, where it says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, some of the confusion here comes in because the word master in Greek is the word kyrios. It's the word for Lord. So this word, if you see the disciples talking to Jesus and calling him Lord, it's just this word kyrios. There's no like capital K in Greek to show that they're talking about Jesus and not just some earthly master. It's just the word Lord, but it's clearly understood in the context who is, is speaking. Some people think that when it says the master commended the dishonest manager, that it's talking about Jesus. But I think a pretty plain reading of the text doesn't show that. So I think that debate is kind of, kind of just out the window. Um, the second one is in verse 9, where it says, And I tell you, make friends for yourself. Uh, that, that part. Uh, the question is, is this Jesus speaking here, or is this Luke speaking as the narrator? Um, personally, I just think it's, it would be hard to imagine Luke uh, giving this type of instruction to his readers uh, on a matter of, of this importance. So I think it's pretty clear that this is, this is Jesus speaking here. So that's just some of the like, debate that goes on about this passage um, that, makes, that goes along a little bit with the content of it that kind of makes it so challenging. Um, I think it's pretty straightforward there that it's, you know, it's the master in the parable speaking in verse 8 and Jesus speaking in verse 9. But that doesn't clear up some of the content that's, that's challenging. The challenging content is in verse 8, where the master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So clearly he's not commended for his dishonesty, right? Like nobody's saying, hey, this is great. This guy was, was dishonest. But he's still commending him for his shrewdness. So, or, or this word shrewdness um, can be translated as wisdom or prudence or sensibility. So there's something... That the, that the master sees that this manager did, that's, that he's like, wow, that was, a, that was a good job. Well, the reason that he is impressed is because of his foresight. And he compares it here he's, he, where he says, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So this is a little bit like Jesus is telling this parable to the disciples to say, look at this guy, right? Look at this guy who was wise about his future, right? If we go back to verse four, that's kind of where, that's kind of where the key is in, in understanding his motivation here. He says, I've decided what to do, right? He didn't want to dig, he didn't want to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he's saying, I got to look out for myself here, right? Because I'm about to lose everything. Like if I don't do something, I'm toast, right? I'm going to be begging on the street. So he goes and he kind of does this like unjust practice but his, ma his master sees that and he's like, oh, like that was pretty good. Like you're going to be taken care of, even though you like robbed from me, right? Like, so he's not commending what he did. He's commending his, his shrewdness in, 
preparing for himself for the future. So now, after verse 8, the parable is over. Uh, Jesus addresses his disciples as he begins now to explain to them uh, what the meaning of the parable is then in verse 9. So verse 9 is the verse that really seems to ruffle a lot of feathers uh, because, like I said, we can, I think we can come to terms with the master commending the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, even if we can't totally wrap our minds around it or like see how there's any justification for what he did. Um, but again, this is a parable, right? Uh, it, it doesn't have to have a perfect one-to-one correlation with our reality. It's like when a friend tries to give you some encouragement and they say, well, it's kind of like this, and they go on to explain what the kind of like the situation that's kind of like what you might be going through, and you're like, yeah, it's kind of like that, but that's not really what's going on. Like, that's kind of how parables are, right? They're not meant to like give an exact parallel to what we're what we're going through. I think last week's parable of the prodigal son is a perfect example. Uh, that doesn't describe events that are going to probably, like none of us are ever going to be eating pig food because we're so destitute, right? Like we'd probably go like to the dumpster behind McDonald's, but you're not going to go out to some pig farm and actually literally eat pig food. Like that's totally ridiculous, right? But the point is clearly taken and even that in the in the parable of the prodigal son that's not the main point of the parable so i think we, we get the point there yeah so even if the details of this parable of the dishonest manager in verses one to eight are a little hard to understand that doesn't change the fact that in verse nine jesus gives a very clear explanation of what we are to do and how we are in a sense to be like the dishonest manager who planned wisely for his future he says, he says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, those friends may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, for followers of Jesus, preparing for the future is a different kind of preparation than it is for the people in the world. And that's kind of the point that Jesus is trying to drive home here. Listen to commentator William Hendrickson's explanation of verse 9. He says, Jesus wants his people similarly to look ahead and by means of unrighteous wealth, so to support all good causes and needy people that when the givers die, there will be a grand welcome for them. Those heavenly inhabitants who, while still on earth, benefited by the kindness of these big hearted ones will then be welcoming the new arrivals. They will with gladness usher them into their heavenly habitations. Well, there's another thing I think that's kind of easy to get hung up on in this passage, and it's the term unrighteous wealth. Uh, there's kind of some plays on words with this term unrighteous. It's the one that's used of the manager. Um, unrighteous wealth here, which we're going to see again in verse 11. Uh, several translations render this worldly wealth, which I think might be a little more helpful maybe for us, just in the kind of the way we think about this. Um, the actual Greek word is, is the word unrighteous or unjust. That's, it's not a bad translation, but kind of the meaning of it. I think the point, um, the point here isn't that the money that's being used itself is unjust. Like there's nothing wrong with the money in and of itself. It's that it's part of a world system that is in and of itself unjust. So like the problem is with the world and the system. So I think if we say worldly wealth, that kind of helps us 
think about that a little more clearly. Well, up to this point, we might still be left scratching our heads a bit, trying to figure out what Jesus is exactly getting at. But I think verses 10 to 13, here in, in these verses, Jesus is going to get to the heart of the matter. And it is this explanation to, this, to the disciples that will be overheard by the Pharisees and will cause them to ridicule Jesus. So if there is a lesson for us, it is right here in these verses. Pay attention to 10 to 13. Verse 10 is pretty straightforward with these parallel statements. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. Okay, that's pretty clear, kind of coming out of the parable of the dishonest manager, right? This parallel between faithfulness and, and honesty or, or dishonesty. Then verses 11 and 12 re reiterate this idea of faithfulness leading to greater responsibility. He talks about if you've been faithful with this unrighteous or worldly wealth, or if you have not been faithful with that, who will entrust to you tr true riches? If you've not been faithful in what's in others, who will give to you that which is your own? Well, if we've been paying attention at all up to this point in Luke, we know that when Jesus speaks of true riches here at the end of verse 11, he is not talking about the treasures of this world, but the treasures in heaven. And I think this help, helps to shed a little bit of light on the idea of being received into the eternal dwellings that he talks about in verse 9. This idea of, of true riches or things that last, things that are eternal. So my argument in this first main point is that faithfulness with our worldly wealth reveals where our true allegiance lies. And that couldn't be any more clear in verse 13, which is the transitional verse between this first section and the next section. If you, again, if you don't get anything out, else out of this passage, don't miss this truth in verse 13. Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't divide your allegiances. Notice the strong contrasts here. Hate with love, being devoted versus being versus despising something. There is no middle ground, Jesus says. You cannot serve God and money. The question that we must ask is which one of these is our master? Is it God or money? Is God your master or is money your master? A good way to think about this might be asking yourself, which one do I spend more time thinking about? God or money? Which one do I lie in bed at night figuring out how to get more of? God or money? Which one am I content to live without? God or money? But you might object, well, Jesus just told us to make friends by use of worldly wealth, so money must have some purpose, right? Of course it does. We all need money to live, to eat, to provide for our families. That is wisdom. That is faithfulness. But the problem that we all face is really a heart problem. It's not an external problem. It's not how much money we have. That's not the issue. It's a heart problem. 
And we see that very clearly in the next section in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. Again, if you're taking notes, the second main point, beginning in verse 14, is that self-justification and worldly exaltation reveal what is truly in our hearts. Self-justification and worldly exaltation reveal what is truly in our hearts. Notice how Luke describes the Pharisees here in verse 14. One commentator pointed out, and I don't know that this is true over all of Luke, but for the most part, Luke never makes any negative comments about the Pharisees. He just kind of like points out the fact that they're there. This is Luke's analysis here. He says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things. So Luke is pointing out to the reader, reminding us, right? Like Jesus is going after these guys because their hearts are in the wrong place. Like they love money. So that's why Jesus is going after them. They love money more than they love God. When they heard Jesus say that you cannot serve God in money, they were livid. How dare Jesus try to tell them how they should live? So they ridiculed him. And this isn't just like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. The word translated ridiculed, it's only used one other time in the New Testament, also by Luke in chapter 23, when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And it says the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. It's that same word, scoffed, that's translated ridiculed here. The rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. There is a contempt for Jesus here, both for his teaching and for his fulfillment of his mission for which the Father sent him. And the wickedness of human hearts is revealed, and Jesus sees it, of course. And he calls the Pharisees out in verse 15. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What is exalted among men? If you have the Pew Bible, you can just turn back one page. It's on the very bottom of the last page. Uh, Luke chapter 14, the parable of the wedding feast, which James preached on uh, several weeks ago, talking about those who are invited uh, to the feast. When you come to the banquet, right, don't go up to the to the head of the table. Don't go to the best seat because if somebody else comes in who's who has a higher social status than you, you're going to end up having to go take that walk of shame all the way to the back of the table, right, and sit at the lowest place. He's saying, no, when you come in, sit in the lowest place, and then maybe the master will come to you and say, hey, come up to a higher place, right? Well, he ends that whole teaching with verse 11. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So I don't think Jesus is only talking about money here when he's talking about this idea of exaltation. He's also talking about worldly status. I think money and worldly status go pretty closely together, don't they? And that's what the Pharisees are guilty of. Like, after everything Jesus already said to the Pharisees, Luke could have said here, the Pharisees who were lovers of their own social status and lovers of, like, he didn't need to say that because it's just so obvious, right? But he, like, adds on to that, right? Like, the Pharisees who want to sit at the head of the table and who love their social status were also lovers of money. It's like this double indictment. He's doubling down and saying, all you guys care about is yourselves. Like, all you care about is, 
is puffing up yourselves and, and having your fat, you know, your fat castles and your fat chariots or whatever they ride in. I, you know, like you guys are all just about yourselves and Jesus is just going right at them because he knows their hearts, right? And he, like when he says, God knows your hearts, like, and then he comes and blasts them. He's this pretty clear statement of who he is, right, to them. And they, but they still don't get it. Now, so how do we take all this, right? Like, obviously, we're not first century Pharisees, um, and we're not 21st century Pharisees in the strictest sense. But we are like the Pharisees when we get the gospel backwards, when self-justification and exaltation among men dominate our passions and our pursuits in life. So what is the point of this parable and this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees? What is the takeaway for us? Clearly, it's not that if you just be wise with your money, you can punch your ticket to heaven. There are plenty of frugal people out there, uh, maybe even very financially generous people, who are doing it totally for the wrong reasons. Being gracious with your money will not, being wise with your money will not punch your ticket to heaven. Faithfulness in the little things is a matter of the heart through and through. Pastor Philip Riken in his preaching commentary on this passage tells about the famous UCLA basketball coach, John Wooden. Some of you guys have probably heard this, this story before. John Wooden, he's the winner of 10 NCAA championships. He was a towering figure in the world of basketball. Do you know how he started the basketball season, basketball practice, the first day of practice every season? He did the same exact thing year in and year out. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, one of the greatest players of all time, was one of his players. Coming out of high school, I'm sure he was like probably the number one player in the country, right? John Wooden sits Kareem Abdul-Jabbar down and says, I'm going to show you how to put your socks on the right way, right? He taught his players how to put their socks on and how to put two pairs of socks on instead of one and how to line up the creases in the right way so that they didn't get blisters on their feet. So it wasn't just the X's and O's on the court for Coach Wooden, for Coach Wooden, but it was the little things like proper sock usage that made the difference. The little things matter. Riken goes on, he says, the same principle applies to the spiritual life. Be faithful in doing whatever God has called you to do. Even if what you are doing for the Lord seems insignificant, do it in an excellent way. Work as hard when people are not watching as when they are. Pray for God's help. Take good spiritual care of people right next to you. Be grateful for any sign of God's blessing, however small. Do not give in to little temptations that erode the purity of holiness. Keep your promises, fulfill your commitments, finish what you start. That's a pretty good summary of what it means to live the Christian life faithfully. But let us remember, these things are the fruit of a life lived for God, not the root. For the Pharisees, they sought to have the root of their religion be their own deeds, and they hoped that the fruit that was produced would be their justification before God. But that's completely backwards. We get in by grace and grace alone. Our faith is not because of our faithfulness, 
but because of the faithfulness of another. It is God in Christ who has showed his faithfulness, who has demonstrated his great love, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you are a Christian here today, the call is to seek to be faithful in all things, not because you're trying to earn God's favor, but because he has already shown you his favor when you didn't deserve it, and now you're seeking to live a life that demonstrates gratitude to him for what he has done for you in Christ. And if you're not yet a Christian, no amount of good deeds, no faithfulness in the little things can get you one step closer to being right with God. It's only by letting go of everything else that you are tempted to hope in and letting Christ take full control of your life. Confess your sin to him and turn from it and receive the new life that he alone can give. I want to close by inviting you to turn to the front cover of your worship guide. There's a quote here from R.C. Sproul, which is, I think, a pretty fantastic summary of this passage. He says, God looks on the heart and he expects his people to be responsible, just, and righteous stewards of the riches and privileges that he has given to them. We must listen to the warnings that Christ gave to the Pharisees, for we know that no one can ever justify himself in the sight of God. But we are called to be faithful in little and faithful in much, so that the Lord of the house will grant us his everlasting blessing. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we thank you that even as we wrestle with a, a difficult passage that has many things that are, that are hard to understand, um, we thank you that there is, there is clear, clarity uh, in, in some of the most important teachings uh, that Jesus told us about faithfulness, about where our devotion is, about where our hearts are in regards to you and money. Father, I pray that each one of us would examine our own hearts, that we would examine our allegiances, our affections. God, that we would be honest with ourselves, honest with others, honest before you about our struggles in this area. God, that we would cast aside worldly pursuits, worldly cares that are getting in the way of our pursuit of you. And God, thank you for your faithfulness and, and how you have provided so graciously for us. And we look to you. We look for you to continue to provide. God, we ask that you would continue to work in our hearts, continue to draw us closer to yourself as we seek your kingdom and your righteousness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.